Thank you. Good morning. I hope you're doing well. Happy gift day. Hope you woke up with a spring in your step this morning. It's gift day. Come on. Uh, welcome to you if you're a visitor here. Great to have you with us. And uh, you just happened to come on the morning where we're going to give our money. So thanks for showing up, particularly on this day. We're really, really grateful to have you here. Um, it was my birthday this week, Thursday. I turned 43 years old. That was the right response. That was the right response. I feel so good now. Thank you so much. And uh, I got Chris oh, not Christmas cards, birthday cards from obviously both my kids. I have a, I have a boy and a girl. And, you know, it, it reminded me the difference between daughters and sons. So my daughter's card was full of just beautiful kind of poetry and words. And, Dad, I love this about you. And I love that about you. And, you know, it made me cry. It was just a beautiful moment. My son's card was full of things like dogs climbing trees and kind of stick men doing things. And he's like, happy 63rd, crossed out. Happy 53rd, crossed out. Happy 43rd birthday, Dad. And uh, I enjoyed both the cards, but for different reasons. Um, so, uh, yeah, there you go. 43 years wiser, hopefully. So we are, we are looking at the issue of giving today, and I just want to start by saying this, that actually today is not actually about the money. Today is not actually about the money. And if you're confused by that statement, let's turn to the Bible and try and get some clarity. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to turn to Luke chapter 18. If you don't, don't worry, the words will come up on the screen. And uh, really today we're going to explore two encounters that Jesus has with two men who are both very, very wealthy individuals and with two very, very different outcomes. And the first encounter is with a man that's sometimes known as the rich, young ruler. One day a man comes to Jesus. He actually, in Luke's gospel, is signified as a religious leader. And he comes to Jesus because he is spiritually hungry. He's wanting to know some answers, the big answers to life's questions. And he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, how am I going to inherit eternal life? How can I enter the kingdom? How can I follow you? And Jesus starts by pointing him towards the kind of external requirements of the law, the Ten Commandments. And the man kind of rather proudly kind of does this on his chest, and he's like, well, I've kept all the commandments since I was young. You know, I've not murdered anyone, I've not committed adultery, I've honored my father and mother, and he's like, I'm getting a clean bill of health here. This is easier than I thought. But then Jesus goes slightly nasty on him and asks him a rather penetrating question. This is what we read. When Jesus heard his answer, he said, there is still one thing that you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. When Jesus saw this, he said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples asked the question that we all would have asked on that occasion. Those who heard this said, who then in the world can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible for people is possible with God. That's the first encounter with the first rich man. A few verses later, Jesus has another encounter with the second rich man, 
And he is the vertically challenged tax collector called Zacchaeus. Anybody know the story of Zacchaeus? If you were raised in Sunday school, this will be a familiar story to you. The vertically challenged tax collector, he was a very, very short man. He was also a very wealthy man. He was also a very highly despised man. I mean, today probably still tax collectors may be the last on your Christmas card list. But if you're here and you collect taxes for a living, God bless you. We love you. And you're very, very welcome here. In Jesus' day, tax collectors were particularly despised because not only did they earn huge sums of money, but usually they did it by ripping other people off. They took more than they should have done. And yet again, this man, like the first man, is spiritually hungry to meet Jesus. There is something in him that wants to find answers to life. But being very short and knowing that he's going to miss seeing Jesus, he climbs up a sycamore tree in Jericho and waits for Jesus to pass by. And sure enough, Jesus passes by and Zacchaeus has got an eagle eye view of the man himself. But then something very, very surprising happens. Jesus calls his name and to get out of the tree. And then this is what happens in that story next. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor. Lord, and if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Imagine that kind of tax rebate. Four times as much. That's a good rebate right there. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. Two wealthy men, two very, very different outcomes. And I would suggest to you that in neither story is the real issue money. The real issue in both of these stories is Jesus' interest in something much more important than your finances, which is your heart. That's what Jesus is going after in both these stories. He's digging under the surface because he cares about people. He cares about their hearts. And that's why he talked about money so much, because nowhere does your heart get more revealed than in your attitude towards money. (laughs) You know, Jesus wasn't like the great televangelist who would give you a miracle in exchange for money. That's not Jesus. That's not his way. That's not how he does it. Jesus doesn't promise you a miracle in exchange for your finance. The reason he talks about money is because he's interested in your heart. And that's what's going on in both of these stories. The reality is there is something about money that reflects a much deeper reality that's going on inside of you. You know, it's a little bit like looking in the mirror, you know, which I know some of us probably avoid, particularly when you're 43. And I, I particularly like those mirrors that make you look thinner and slightly younger. You know, kind of, they, I think they have them, don't they, in department stores. Like, they, they deliberately have them set up so that you buy things because you think you look good. Anyway, a mirror is a reflection of reality. It tells you something. And I'll suggest to you that money, likewise, is a mirror. It tells you something. When you look at your money, it immediately says something about what's going on inside your heart, about what you really care about, about what you're really passionate about, about what you really believe, about who you really think you are. Money is a mirror. The question is, what is the money mirror of your life telling you about yourself right now? What's it telling you? about your passions, your priorities, your beliefs. 
Jesus said on another occasion, he said, if you want to know where your heart is, then just find out where your treasure is. How's the condition of my heart? Well, I look at the things that I treasure the most. That will give you a true reflection. Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart above all else, for from it flow all the issues of life. And Zacchaeus, as his world just gets rocked by Jesus, the natural overflow of what just happened in his heart was generosity. It flowed out of his newfound sense of freedom and identity. And I now belong to Jesus. And people who belong to Jesus, they're generous. It was a reflection of what had gone on inside. Someone once said this, that a man shows what he is by what he does with what he has. Let me just try that on this side. <laughs> a man shows what he is by what he does with what he has. So... What you're doing with your stuff, thank you, what you're doing with your stuff says something about you. It reveals something about you. You know, and ultimately, the biblical concept of wealth has nothing to do with how many pounds or pence are in your bank account. You could be here sitting this morning and actually be in financial trouble. You could be broke. You could be in debt. And yet you can still carry biblical wealth because actually it's not about assets, it's about mindsets. I have met some incredibly poor people in my life and they have been some of the richest, wealthiest people I've ever met. I remember visiting a, a tiny little school in a kind of shanty town in Zimbabwe. And literally the school was just a little bit bigger than this little stage down here. And it was made out of sticks and cardboard boxes that you and I would move house using. And in this, there are about a dozen children being taught. Half of them had HIV and AIDS. They were being taught by a beautiful man who was just giving his life to give free education to these kids. And these kids, they understood something about biblical wealth. They didn't have two beams to rub together. But I tell you, the joy, the life, the love, the enthusiasm, the sense of they knew that they were loved by God just poured out of them. It was so beautiful. Biblical wealth is an internal deal. It's an attitude of your heart. I love what one of my friends told me when he was entering the, the uh, financial management business and uh, recently kind of made a change into that industry, helping people know where to make wise investments financially. And it was a kind of a new line of work for him. And he and his family, they're a family I hugely respect, brilliant kind of family, so full of life. And he said to me that at the interview, they asked him this question, why do you want this job? You know, tell us about your experience in the wealth management industry. And this is what he said. He said, I have spent the last 20 years in the wealth management industry, but it's only in the last six months that I've actually thought about money. Just think about that. I've been in the wealth management industry for 20 years. Only in the last six months have I thought about money. Wealth has nothing to do with this, but it has everything to do with this. You always export around you the reality that's inside of you, and your money is a mirror. And I think as we approach this gift day, there are three things that really money gets right to the heart of. The first one is this. It really reveals something about the heart of the Father, the heart of the Father, and I think Jesus, as he encounters the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus, what he's wanting them to get is a revelation of what their heavenly father is like. He is pointing them towards God. 
One of them walks away sad because he cannot trust the Father. The other walks away rejoicing and happy because he gets a revelation. I have a heavenly Father who will provide for me. This is what Jesus said on another occasion, Matthew 6. Don't worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Notice that Jesus' instructions about fathering are in the context of finance. In other words, one of the biggest canvases that God loves to paint on to say, I am your father who will provide, is in the issue of money. It's gone really quiet in this room. It's fascinating. It's money. It's one of the ways that he loves to reveal who he really is, that you really are my children, that you really do belong to me, that I'm a father who will provide for you. And I think for some of us, we still struggle to trust God with our finances. Now, it's amazing to me that we can trust God to save our souls for all of eternity, but we struggle to trust him with our money. Just think about that. You have put your faith in Jesus to save you forever and ever and ever and ever. I would suggest to you that trusting with your finances is somewhat secondary. <laughs> money reveals the Father. You know, I remember a few gift days ago here... Uh, we kind of gave some money, and it was very similar to this morning. There were baskets at the front, and everyone kind of came forward at the end of the meeting. We did our jigs, and, you know, we sang our songs, and, you know, I came forward with my envelope all filled out, hopefully correctly, Royden, and got the basket, and I'm like slamming that thing in there, like, yes, Jesus, give him my money, woo-woo. You know, it was like a high point. It was great, went home buzzing. The very next day, the car died. Have you ever had those moments where, like, you, you're, I'm just going to give generously, and then the next day the dog dies, or you know, you get an unexpected bill, and, and you just think, God, why? How? I gave cheerfully and generously yesterday. How, how come it's gone so pear shaped so quickly? And I, I'll admit, on that particular occasion, I, I did have a bit of a pity party the next day, in fact, for several days. I was like, God, I, I don't understand. You said if I, you know. You know, and eventually we kind of came back to, well, I came back to my senses. I think Carol was always in her senses. I came back to my senses and we're like, Father, you have always been faithful to provide. I have no idea how we're going to buy another car. But God, you've done this stuff before. We trust you. I repent of my self-pity. And Father, would you please reveal yourself again? It was one of those moments. And within a few days, someone walked into the offices here at church, came and found me and said, God has spoken to me and told me to buy you a car. And I'm like, do you mean a whole car? Like a whole like, car with a steering wheel and four wheels and everything. And they're like, yeah, I'm going to buy you a car. I'm going to take you out. I'm going to buy you a car. And you see, it's so often in those moments where you choose to trust the Father that he loves to reveal his fathering. That's how it works. And for some of us, the greatest revelation of the Father heart of God are not going to come in a tingly moment in a meeting. They're going to come as you make decisions with your money. That's what Jesus said. Don't worry about this stuff. Your Father knows you need them. You'll see him when you trust him with your money. And of course, this is really the heart of the gospel. And every time we come to give our money, it just brings us back to the cross. It brings us back to the lavishness of the Father who gave everything for us. For God so loved the world that he 
gave his one and only son. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? This is the gospel, folks. When we give our money, we are celebrating the gospel. We're celebrating the nature of the father who withheld nothing because he wanted his kids back home. That's what we celebrate when we give. It's not actually about the money. It's about him. It's about what he has done and continues to do every single day. So God invites us to trust him with our money. And here's the thing. When you start living generously with your money, you actually start to represent and reflect the Father to other people. Do you know one of the most radical witnesses, countercultural witnesses to the fact that Jesus really is alive is the way that his people handle their money. Because I'm telling you, money is a universal language that everybody understands in this world. Food and money, they're the two universal languages. Everyone understands those two things wherever you go on the planet. I remember a friend once telling me that he went to see his bank manager and you know, he had been building quite a good friendship with his bank manager. And one day he went in to see him and he thought, I'm just going to tell him about Jesus. I'm just going to tell him the gospel. I'm going to tell him about my faith. And so off he launched, you know, through the kind of four steps to salvation, you know, the kind of, you know, uh, every day with Jesus type thing. And the bank manager just was not interested. I mean, it's just like a brick wall, just like, you know, like he was speaking a completely different language. But then my friend had a brain wave. He's like, actually, I'm just going to tell this guy what the church does with its finance. And he says, do you know, one of the things that we love to do in our church is we love to give our money away to help refugees find homes. And suddenly, the bank manager was interested because money is a universal language. And suddenly, people start to hear stories of, what, this, this place was built just because you gave money? I mean, that is radically countercultural. And it says something about him when we live those kind of lives. love one of the little stories we heard this week from the Tsunami of Love Coins. It was from a family who took their kids out to the supermarket and said, right, we are going to give Tsunami of Love Coins away. What should we get from the supermarket that we can give away? And their kids were like, dog foods. Dog foods. And so they're like, okay. So they went in the supermarket. They bought a whole kind of load of dog food. And then they kind of went around giving dog food out to random strangers that were walking their dogs with a tsunami of love coin. Now, there's something about that that says something about the father. This is generous, sacrificial, totally otherworldly. It points back to him. And here's the thing our fear about provisions actually disables our ability to accurately represent to other people what the Father actually looks like. Because it's very difficult to represent someone that you don't really trust. Let me just say that again. It's difficult for you and I to represent the Father if we don't really trust Him to provide for us. And that's why some of us hoard. It's why some of us stop take. It's why some of us resist the urge to give regularly because we're afraid that we won't have enough. We're afraid the Father won't really look after us. I would suggest you it's difficult to represent him accurately if that's your attitude in your heart. Your money reveals you. And there'd be three challenges that I'd want to throw out to some of you here this morning. And the first is this. If you have never ever given anything, like what we're doing this morning, if you kind of 
never actually have taken that step of giving something, my challenge to you is give something. Like just start somewhere. Give a quid. I don't care. Just start somewhere. Start by giving something away outside of yourself. And my two principles for that is do it cheerfully and do it faithfully. Cheerfully is give with a smile on your face. Okay, if you give with a frown, don't bother giving. Seriously, we want to give with a, a smile, with a hilarity, with a woo I get to do this. This is such fun. So do it cheerfully, number one. And secondly, do it faithfully, which simply means just give what you feel Holy Spirit prompts you to give. Just, just be obedient. Be faithful with what he asks you to do. Again, it could be 50 pence. It doesn't really matter. When you're faithful with a little, God multiplies it. So be faithful. And, you know, if you're a married couple, the kind of, the principle that we work on when it comes to gift days is that we, we each pray individually, and then we come together and share the figure that we have on our head that we want to give. And whoever's figure is the highest, that's what we give. That's what we give, which has got us, you know, in some dicey moments from, from, from now, now, now and again. But faithful, faithful. Give what you feel God's asked you to give. Secondly, maybe you are just an occasional giver. Maybe you kind of turn up to gift day, you don't give the rest of the year, and you think, right, gift day, yep, I'm going to give. Maybe you're an occasional giver. My challenge to you is start giving regularly. Just, just start kind of giving little and often, or a lot and often if you'd rather, but let's give regularly. Get into that habit, make it part of your lifestyle. And you know, it's amazing what you can sow in just by giving a little regularly. You know, just for example, last year, we decided I'm going to give £20 into our apostolic fund, which basically helps serve people in other parts of the world. And so we just give £20 a month into that. And then I suddenly realized, last year, I gave £240 to overseas mission, hardly without even thinking about it, because it just goes out of my bank account regularly and often. And it's the same with my tithe to the church. It just goes out regularly and often. That's just how it happens. So my challenge to you, if you are an occasional giver... Why don't you shift to giving regularly and think what that looks like for you? And then lastly, if you do give regularly, move into hilarious, radical, on the edge of your seat giving. Generous giving, radical giving, giving that takes your breath away. I think you know you're radically giving when it slightly takes your breath away. (gasps) Oh my gosh, that's radical generosity right there. You know, I remember once at a gift day, it was just before we were due to move to Bedford from Newcastle, and house prices here were £100,000 more expensive than in Newcastle. And so we had something of a faith gap moving here, and uh, we sold our five-bedroom house for £150,000. So just to give you kind of an idea, and it's still worth the same amount today up north. So, so that's what we were facing, and we had some huge kind of financial issues of faith, And we went to a a particular kind of Bible camp, and there was a gift day, and we prayed. And Carol felt God say to her, if you will give 300 pounds, I will give you 30,000. The trouble was we only had 300 pounds in our bank account. That was it. That was the lot. So, of course, at that moment, you've got a decision. Do we enter the hilarious decision of radical generosity? (laughs) And so we gave. We gave literally everything that we had. And within a few weeks... We had gifts of 30,000 pounds. Within a few years, actually, God had doubled that to 60,000 pounds. Because I tell you, you can never outgive God. You can never outgive God. He's a much better giver than you are. 
You sow your little and he will multiply it. Another issue that really is at the heart of matters is the heart of faith. Notice that in both stories, both men have a conviction of what is the right thing to do. One man walks away sad, but doesn't actually change. The other man starts rejoicing because he puts his faith into action. They both get the same challenge. They both have an emotional response, but only one of them moved into the realm of faith. And I want to suggest to you that some of us have become content with the conviction that I really should do something about my giving, but you never move conviction into action. And I'll suggest to you that faith is a verb. For the non-linguistic scholars amongst us, a verb is a doing word. It's an action word. It means my faith is not just a set of beliefs that I intellectually assent to. My faith is something I put into practice. And Zacchaeus entered the realm of faith in his life. It's interesting sometimes, even as preachers, you can kind of be content if you see someone Shed a tear while you're preaching. Maybe you've had that experience when you pray for someone, you're like, oh, they're shedding a tear. This is going really well. <laughs> you ever had those moments? You're like, oh, this is, this is what I was looking for right there. My suggestion, that is a really good start, but a lousy place to finish. That doesn't equal faith. Action equals faith. You thinking about setting up a standing order is not faith. That's conviction. Faith is when you do something about it. And many of you have heard many giving talks before, but you're yet to do something about it. Can I encourage you to change? Can I encourage you to do as Zacchaeus this morning? Put your faith into action. Make some decisions. The thing about faith is it always multiplies more faith. (laughs) When you and I start to live in the realm of faith, particularly towards money, it actually activates the gift of faith within us and starts to multiply faith in other people. Can you think, for example, for Zacchaeus, how much faith would have been deposited to the families that received their tax rebate from him? I mean, what that would have done for them, it would have increased their faith in a God he provides. And that's what faith does with money. It multiplies faith in other people. You know, uh, Laura, my daughter, she's doing an internship this year at the church, and she was praying for financial provision to be able to do the year, and she was praying for a set amount of money. The day after she'd been really seeking God about it, someone deposited a thousand pounds in a bank account that she wasn't expecting, that didn't even know what she'd been praying for, and it just paid for the whole year instantly. And I tell you what that does it took faith on the person who gave the gift, but it produced faith in Lauren as she received the gift. And that's what faith does it multiplies faith. And I am dreaming of a church that multiplies faith because we give generously. Can you imagine this area just being filled with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people seeking after God? Can you imagine the impact of our faith in tackling poverty in this area? Can you imagine the impact of our faith on, I don't know, building the best car park Bedford has ever seen to the glory of God? Just imagine what we can do together. Now, the reality is right now, 34% of people in this church give regularly. 66% of people do not. 34% of people pay 90% of everything that happens in this church. That is a beautiful invitation for 66% of us to join the gang and put your faith into action so that we can see what's already happening multiply even further. And then lastly, 
heart of the issue is about belonging to family. I think for Zacchaeus, he suddenly found that he had a family that he belonged to, that he never realized he had before. Suddenly, he switched from being a consumer to a contributor. Something switched in his head. Before, he was like, I'm just going to see how much I can gather, how much I can get, how much I can consume. I'm just going to be a consumer. But suddenly, he meets Jesus. His heart gets changed, and he thinks, that's not who I am anymore. I'm a contributor. I belong to a family. And here's the thing. You will always give to something that you feel part of. You give to what you feel you belong to. I mean, I could open up my wallet, for example, and in my wallet is a card that says, I am a bronze membership holder of Brighton and Hove Albion Football Club. Thank you. I know some of you think that's really sad, and perhaps it is. But for £30 a year, I get the privilege of being a member so that I can buy really expensive tickets to go and watch Premier League football. What a privilege that is. Why do I pay? Because I feel I belong to something. I feel I'm part of something. My, my money is following my passion, my sense of this is my people. I know that's sad, but it's true. <laughs> and that's the thing. We give to what we feel we belong to. We give to family, don't we? When you're in family, you don't just consume, you contribute. You all wash the dishes. You all, have, hopefully, you all have a go at cleaning the house. You all contribute something. You put something in. That's what family's like. You know, we are part of something so brilliant together. I love this church family. I love it, you know, for, for all of us guys who, who are kind of on the senior kind of leadership team. I want you to know, we, we, we give into this thing ourselves. You know, this is, we're not paid professionals. I would give into this if I wasn't paid to do it. I gave into church long before I was paid to actually do what I do now. Why? Because we give to family. And this is family. This is home. This is us. This is where we belong together. We're, we're doing something more together than we could ever apart. And I love that. I love what we get to do together as a family. And, you know, I think one of the things that uh, I'm dreaming of is that we get to leave a legacy of our family right across the world, not just in Bedfordshire. That there is something about our faith with our money that ignites faith all over the world. And I'll just finish with this story. I was in Israel over the summer, and uh, this is a picture of me up on the Golan Heights in Israel, and it's a kind of series of mountain ranges, and you can kind of see right over into the Syrian border. It's right next to the Syrian border, um, that, that signpost there tells you the way to Baghdad, and Jordan is just over that way. Lebanon is just over that way. Egypt is not too far away either. And it's just kind of this melting pot thing. And uh, as I was up there, I was chatting to some UN peacekeepers who were there with their binoculars looking into the Syrian border at what looked like just a devastated city, just burnt out, black. No kind of movement, no cars, nothing on the road. And I said, you know, what's going on at the moment? And they said, well, right now, ISIS troops are looking at us, and we are looking at them. And they said, it's quiet at the moment because it's Ramadan. There have not been too many incursions over the border. But the guy who was showing me up there said, just a few months ago, a rocket had fired over from Syria right where I was standing. And they said, you know, it's peaceful at the moment, but you never know when something's going to kick off. And just there on the left, that's a gun post literally pointing into Syria. And I had this kind of moment as I stood there, and I, I had this thought. I, 
somehow feel like what happens in Syria is my responsibility. That the war-torn places on our planet, the places that probably none of us would choose to move to, that somehow that is our generation's responsibility to do something about whether it's Syria or Saudi Arabia or North Korea or Sudan or places where no one has ever heard of the gospel, what China was to Hudson Taylor, these places are for us. And if I'm not willing to go myself, then I have to send my money. I have to send my money because not to do so for me feels like a sin. Because we're called to be in the darkest places on the planet and bring light. How can I do that if I don't go I can send my money to those that do. This is about family and about family legacy. And I'll finish with this photo, which was just in the bunker under where all the army soldiers used to be. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. And that is our great hope.